Boraway Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Consequence Podcast Network. Ah, the family band. Always feels like a good idea. People who have shared life experiences, influences, and genetics. Why wouldn't it make sense to start a band with people whose singing voices are already compatible and who are already right there? You don't have to put an ad in the back of the Illinois Entertainer or whatever your local musician recruitment publication is when your rhythm section shares a bunk bed in the room next to yours. And it really is very often an amazing idea for a collaboration. When Sly and the Family Stone were at their creative and commercial peak, there were already more than a few sibling-based R&B groups doing great work. The Brothers Johnson, Tavares, the Isley Brothers, the Staple Singers, and the Jackson Five all spring to mind. But even within that handful of examples, the experiences of those respective rhythmic relatives varied greatly. And inside of Sly and his family band, there were enough experiences for them, the Winans, the Wainwrights, and the Wilsons. The Beach Boy ones and the Heart ones. In this episode, we're going to look at the Stone siblings and the pros and cons of creating and doing business with family. And why sometimes it works better than others. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. This one is a family affair. I'm really sorry. I ha- it's, it's right there. One child grows up to be somebody that just loves to learn. And another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn mom loves the both of them you see it's in the blood both kids are good mom the stone siblings first family band wasn't actually the family stone like so many black artists even to this day they got their start as church musicians. Their parents belonged to a local church of God in Christ, and Kojic doctrines encourage musical expression in the home. And no pun intended, thank God. If it wasn't for church music, we wouldn't have Whitney or Aretha or Otis or Marvin or, 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 you get it. Amen. 
Sly Stone was born Sylvester Stewart, and the band was called the Stewart Four, even though there were five of them. Sly's sister Loretta played piano. Other sisters Rose and Betta sang. And Freddie and Sly joined in wherever they were needed. While the Stewart house was musical, they were not about that secular life. No rock and roll allowed. So the kids played gospel in songs like this one. 1952's On the Battlefield, which was released on Church of God in Christ Records and distributed by the Northern California Sunday School Department. Oh, once I was a civilian Walking around in sin Till my Jesus, he drafted me In the service he put me in He took me by my hand I joined the Christian band You know that I'm on the battlefield For my Lord That is an eight-year-old Sylvester Stewart on lead vocals. Sly knew what was up even then, and every one of the Stewart kids, except for Loretta, would go on to adopt the Stone surname and pursue a career in secular music. Something about family bands is that they so often start when everyone is very young. For one thing, you want a singing voice like eight-year-old Sly with that high range? Well, good luck with that after puberty. For another thing, there's a definite market for child singing groups. Little ones appreciate representation just as much as the rest of us, and parents like that the content in those songs will be rated PG at their very least wholesome. And if you're anything like I was as a very young person, you were starting to have little crushes on the tweens on your screens. You could not tell me in middle school that I was not going to marry Jordan Knight and Johnny Gill. And if anybody out there knows them, you send them my way. I'm gonna walk out in my Jesus name. I've been false accused so many times. I bear the blame I'm gonna live a Christian life God knows I'm not ashamed You know I'm gonna keep walking, talking, praying, singing, teaching in my Jesus name A 22-year-old Sly Stone formed Sly Stone and the Stoners in 1966, which featured his friend Cynthia Robinson on the trumpet. At the same time, Sly Stone's brother Freddie was also founding a new group called Freddie and the Stone Souls. Its lineup included drummer Greg Errico and saxophonist Ronnie Crawford. Another saxophonist, Jerry Martini, who was a friend of Sly's, suggested that the brothers should combine their two bands. And everyone said, oh, yeah, duh. And Sly Brothers and Sisters was born. And by October, Sly Brothers and Sisters became Sly and the Family Stone. Soon, Sly's sister Veda and her friends, Mary McCreary and Elva Mutton, 
who'd had their own gospel group, the Heavenly Tones, approached Sly Stone about joining his new group. Another round of Oh Yeah Does went around, and they became Little Sister, backing vocalists. And when Larry Graham joined the band in 1967, all the stone tablets were in place. Now you'd think that because the Stewart kids had all the experience of performing together, and that because every non-stone had been vetted by the siblings, things would just continue to roll along merrily, right? It's easy to look at the poppy, happy sheen of a family band and assume that an equally smiley existence is present offstage as well. I mean, especially in a band like Sly and the Family Stone. Their performances were the epitome of exuberance. They pulled you into their hurricane of a party at every show. But if you even got to take the tiniest peek behind the scenes, you know that sometimes strife is waiting just right there in the wings, even with the most talented of musicians. Problematic relationships can occur in any band. But sometimes it's the people who know you the best who know exactly how to manipulate you. And no one, even if related to one another, will react to the trappings of success in the same way. Joseph Patel, the producer of the Academy Award-nominated documentary Summer of Soul, had this to say about the different dynamic of the family band. I, I, I don't, I'm not a musician, but I know that when I'm in a tight space with even my closest friends and we are going through a rigorous creative process or a rigorous creative experience, it's really hard to maintain those boundaries. And all of it is being experienced for the first time. How do you navigate something like that? And He's in a band with two family members, people that he's played with for a long time. They're on the road constantly. He's in a romantic relationship with one of them. He's in a musical relationship with another strong personality in Larry Graham, um, who by all accounts is sick of sly shit. And, you know, there's drugs involved. There's um, fame and stardom pulling one member away. Like, I, I, that's a minefield to navigate. I think we have not been sympathetic to that through the years. But I think in 2022, more artists are speaking out about things like that. More people are being sympathetic. Even if you're rich and famous, you still have to navigate these emotional minefields. But man, can you imagine being in that band? And like, oh, I literally cannot. <laughs> right? And, tour, and touring... 250 nights out of the year sometimes playing multiple shows in the same night and trying to maintain those relationships the familial relationships or those close friend relationships like that's impossible for the family stone things were further complicated by the fact that while there were three members of the actual stone family there were four members of the band who were just there for the music man bassist larry graham 
often butted heads with Sly and Freddy. And a lot of that was due to the rampant drug use just flowing through the band after they relocated from San Francisco to Los Angeles in 1969. In 1970, I don't know if you know this, but drugs were everywhere, especially in show business. But just to make sure that they were, it's said that Sly went so far as to carry around a violin case full of the illicit substance du jour everywhere he went. And he was missing a full third of the band's live shows. And even if they supported their brother, Freddie and Rose certainly did not support not getting paid. Now see, arguing about money is probably going to happen within any band, especially when they're signed to a major label and have now this new responsibility of commercial viability in addition to having to be creative on demand. Steve Huey, critic for allmusic.com and former editor for more than one Braxton family-based reality show, so he knows a thing or two about sibling drama, said this. Siblings, you know each other real well. You've known each other your whole lives. There's no surprises there, but if, if that's giving you some time to have all these sorts of tensions and rivalries and baggage built up, then uh, once, once the stakes for all of that have been raised substantially to where you're a nationally popular touring band and everything feels way more important and potentially lucrative than it used to, you know, these, these fault lines could just split and crack open. Adding to all of this is the burgeoning romantic relationship between Sly Stone and Cynthia Robinson. The two bandmates had known each other since high school, and they'd now begun to turn a platonic-slash-creative thing into a we're-literally-going-to-have-a-child-together in 1976 thing. By the time of There's a Riot Going On's release, the family stone was eroding like the Grand Canyon. Greg Errico left the group in 1971 and was replaced with Andy Newmark. Larry Graham and the Stone Brothers weren't speaking, and Graham was fired in early 1972 and replaced with Rusty Allen. All of Sly's missed gigs over the years had made it hard for talent buyers to book them. In 1970 alone, 26 of their 80 concerts were canceled, and even more started late. And we'll talk about a particular one of those shows in episode four. Ken Roberts became the group's promoter and later their general manager when no other representatives would work with the band. And Sly Stone hired two of his streetwise friends, Hamp Bubba Banks and J.B. Brown as his personal managers. And their duties included protecting him from his supposed enemies. And those enemies, unfortunately, included members of his own band. But to the outside world, anticipation for a new album was growing. Sly and the Family Stone's popularity were, it was at an all-time high. And the only people who wanted new music more than CBS were the fans. But that was easier said than done. Tensions were super high within the group as they began recording. There was a riot going on. 
And Sly seemed to have his streetwise friends and the Black Panthers over to the studio more than his co-creators at times. Deadlines were coming and going, and the executives at CBS were frustrated at the lack of progress, but through hell and high water, There's a Riot Going On was completed in 1971, and a masterpiece was born from chaos. In January 1975, Roberts booked the band at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. I don't know if you know about that place, but it's kind of a big deal. It was going to be their great comeback, with Sly rising like a phoenix from the ashes of the band's fallout. But only one-eighth of the venue's tickets sold, and the Family Stone had to pull together their own money to return home to Los Angeles. After that Radio City show, they called it quits. Eight years together, and eight million albums sold, Sly and the Family Stone was no more. After the band dissolved, and Sly went on to a solo career, Freddie Stone would join Larry Graham's group, Graham Central Station which, by the way, one of my favorite band names of all time. And Freddie collaborated with Sly one last time in 1979 for Back on the Right Track. Freddie would retire from the music industry and eventually become the pastor of the Evangelist Temple Fellowship Center in Vallejo, California. Rose Stone was pulled out of the band by her husband and manager, the aforementioned Bubba Banks, and she began her own solo career, recording an album under the name Rose Banks in 1976. And in case you were wondering, the stone name in music still lives on. Sly is still retired, but Rose's daughter, Lisa Stone, sang with her aunt Veta and original trumpet player, the late Cynthia Robinson, in a Sly and the Family Stone tribute band, alongside Cynthia's daughter with Sly, Fun Stone. In the next episode of The Opus, we're going to visit the titular event in 1971's There's a Riot Going On, a show that never was in the city that I'm sitting in right now. For the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this has been The Opus. I'll see you next time.
Hey, this is Jill Hopkins from The Opus. After you've done checking out the latest episode of the show, be sure to check out some of the other awesome programs on Consequence Podcast Network, including The What Podcast, a weekly show by two Bonnaroo veterans exploring and highlighting the live music scene. Or Going There with Dr. Mike. It's an interview podcast series in which clinical psychologist and life coach Dr. Mike Friedman talks with musicians about the crossroads where music and mental health meet. So head to consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Bryce. It's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Oberst, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.